Welcome to another special episode of Upstream in Perspective. I'm one of your hosts, Jessica Nelson. On today's episode, we catch up with a few of our research and analysis experts in the Asia-Pacific region to discuss the outlook for China's national oil companies in the coming year. With that, I'll hand it off to Nick Sharma, Research and Analysis Director, to lead the conversation. Hello, everyone. Um, welcome to uh, um, IGES Markets um, podcast on the outlook for China national companies and domestic upstream. It's a pleasure to kind of give you some perspectives of how the Chinese NSCs uh, will be looking um, at the outside world as well as inward in the coming years. I'm joined by my colleagues, um, Eric Dana, who's the Director of Upstream Advisory, Kun Feng Zhu, who's an Associate Director within the Research and Analysis Group, Yin Yuan, who is a senior analyst of research and analysis, and myself, Nick Sharma, um, as, as well a director in the research and analysis group. Today, we're really kind of going to have a bit of a dialogue. So our colleagues are going to go back and forth and to discuss a, a number of different issues. But broadly, we really want to cover a couple of big themes that are really playing out uh, and will play out in the coming year. Firstly, um, how will the national companies balance the current industry decline? And, and how will that be balanced in terms of the long-term energy security and the policy reform ambitions? And then to the second point, some of the challenges that Chinese national companies will face um, with the domestic production stabilization targets. Um, and then lastly, how will they really look internationally in terms of the changing ENP industry, the mature domestic resource base, and how will they really respond to the opportunities, both on the domestic and international front? And so with that kind of setting the frame of what we would like to talk, I'd probably like to bring Kun Feng into the discussion to really give his views on how will the Chinese NOCs kind of respond uh, to the low oil prices? Um, and more importantly, the domestic oil demand decline, uh, you know, as we've seen globally. So some of your Quick thoughts here, uh, Kun Feng, how do you see that play out? Yeah, when we say that Chinese industries are facing unprecedented challenges, and if we look at what is different from this time compared with last time, that is the drastic demand decline caused by COVID-19. And if we look at China's economy, it has contracted about 6.8% decline in Q1, which is the lowest number ever since China has record of GDP number. And if we look at oil demand, actually it's worse compared with economy decline because our forecast of China's annual GDP growth can still be about 2%, which is a positive number, but oil demand is about 5 or 10% decline compared with last year. And of course, the oil price crash and, and demand decline will have a very big impact on both upstream and downstream for the analysis. And of course, another challenge also comes from the NOC's extra burden of their responsibilities, that is uh, China's national energy security. So we, we all know that China's economy grows, that its oil import dependency uh, started to rise and has reached about 70% in last year. So energy security has become the center of China's, China's uh, upstream policy when oil price reached more than 100 US dollars per barrel a few years ago. And we all know that the three NOCs have just kicked off their seven-year action plans last year, setting very ambitious domestic production and reserve addition targets, uh, such as uh, growth in unconventionals and in explorations, 
With all the new rea uh, realities of low oil prices and long-term energy security agenda, the uh, strategic resilience of all those NOCs are under test, and the NOCs are under pressure to revisit their plans. And that's, that's an interesting point, and I think just for the context for our listeners, um, you know, the oil demand obviously has a direct correlation to the economic growth of the country, but oil production largely, if we think about year 2000 to where we are today, domestically has grown a bit, but the exponential growth has really come from the import side. So really, uh, like a number of peer countries in the region, you know, China's importing nearly, um, you know, 70 to 80% of the oil, and the gas is probably more in the 50-50 range. So that's, that's you know, that's a, that's a pretty significant challenge. And then, so that obviously leads me to the important point, and then, Confink, if the policy, um, you know, has to be two-faced, right? Because one, there's a domestic focus because, you know, yeah. the, the government wants them to secure and grow domestic reserves and resources. But then, you know, how do you balance that with the, the energy security? How do the national companies really tackle this uh, when that's a government mandate? Yeah, if you look at China's uh, upstream policy and its history, that actually the policy has always been centered around national energy security. But the focus of that has been shifted or have experienced several phases. If we look at that, look back on a few years ago when oil price was still very high, when there's about 100 uh, US dollars per barrel, that the focus is more on international M&A, basically to buy assets outside of China and try to exploit domestic un unconventionals like shale gas or, or tide gas or CBM. So, uh, but now the starting from 2017, the focus of all the policy has been shifted back to domestic China. So that's where we are right now. And if we look at current upstream policy reform, it aims to diversify participants in China's upstream. That's the focus. And to, to achieve that, it needs to remove barriers for foreign and domestic private companies to invest in China's oil and gas upstream. That implies policy changes in areas like acreage avoiding, acreage exit. And finally, uh, the policy aims to create a competitive landscape that is still dominated by NOCs, but with very diversified participants. So uh, we expect China's upstream policy reform to continue continue its pace despite the challenges of low oil prices. But the, if we look at the new policies, actually the new policy from Ministry of Resources on further opening China's upstream, on, uh, which has been effective actually just a few days ago, uh, that is uh, 1st of May. However, it's unlikely to attract the influx of other non-NOCs because uh, everyone is in their survival mode under the low oil prices and has been very constrained in capital and and has changed their discipline of spending. But that may not always be a bad thing. It means less direct impact to the NLCs in the short term. And that buys time for the government to continue the reform when there's less friction as it won't create big impact in the short term. Yeah, and I think that's, <clears throat> that's a really interesting point. And just for our listeners, you know, in 2015, when the oil price downturn happened on a year-in-year -year basis, the domestic production was about 4.3-ish million barrels a day. And, and as we exited 2019, we were down to about 3.8. Uh, 
Now, some of that was maturity. Obviously, things are declining. Some of the subsidy reliefs on, on the high um, EOR um, were also kind of taken off. So that was a gradual decline. But what's obviously quite startling is the demand or the import increase. When we were in 2015, uh, the number year end was about eight. And year in 2019, we were you know just under 11. So a domestic demand um, domestic production decrease in the range of 400,000, but then a, a rapid import increase of three. So the challenge is really there. And that would obviously put a lot of strain on the finances. And so, Yin, you know, when we think about this, you know, Confink's kind of laid out some of the challenges. How do they, how is the financial health of the NOCs uh, from 2014? And it'd be good to get a perspective of, you know, what happened pre-2014 and then what's happened from 2014 to 2019-20. So w w can you share some of your thoughts there? Yeah, sure, Nick. Um, so the Chinese NOCs have been quite responsive during last round of market downturn in 2015. They quite rapidly reduced the high cost production, especially in domestic market, and they also drastically cut the capital expenditure. And I think all these measures are quite effective. The free cash flow rebounded in 2015, and they have been really strong in cash flow generation in, in the next following years. And what's more importantly is that they have also directed a significant portion of the cash flow generated from the operations to debt reduction. So by the end of 2019, the three companies have, you know, rather abandoned cash reserves and low leverage compared with their international peers. So just to give you a quick stat, the cash balance at the group level for the Chinese NOCs is quite sufficient to cover their short-term borrowings before the, the, the price crash in March. So, and I mean, so the debt problem that's really prevailing for the US ENPs is not the most significant challenge for them. And they also have easy access to financing uh, from the domestic institutions that would provide another layer of protection for them. Uh, but the low price will definitely put pressure on their financials as well. Uh, if you look at their financial reporting for the Q1 of 2020, Sinopat Corp and PetroChina already booked negative operating cash flow. And they also have hinted bigger capex cut than, their, than they originally planned. So this definitely show the financial challenge for them. Uh, and I think what's different this time compared with the 2014 market crash is that they have to strike a really delicate balance between the long-term development goals and short-term cash flow goals. As Quinfong mentioned, if the NOCs were to stabilize near-term production and also deliver on their seven-year action plan, which is due in five years' time, they will definitely have to press ahead with current development projects. And they will also have to continue exploration uh, to replenish their reserve base at their reserve repla replacement ratio has dropped to a rather alarming level in the past few years. And I mean, in this situation, this could mean directing capital only to priority areas and projects. Yeah, and I think the numbers show the, the need for investment. You know, if you look at a U.S. North, Amer North America independence, the peer group itself, uh, very few are, uh, have capex cuts less than 50%. The larger uh, independents are in the 30 to 50%. The ISCs are around the 30%. And then the national companies are in a much more smaller range of 10 to 20 percent. So, so that's an interesting kind of uh, situation in terms of they need to continue to invest uh, given the security. Eric, 
what does that really then bring mean for them? Would they? Would you think this would be the right time for a counter cyclical M and A move, uh, given um, you know the, the prices are going to be quite depressed? What would be some of the opportunities they would think about here? Uh, and then I'd like to come back to you, Yin, in terms of where their portfolios are uh, currently and, and what kind of play types they may consider. So, Eric, some initial thoughts? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think um, we're in a very different place uh, in this downturn when it comes to their appetite for international M&A than we were in the, uh, in the last downturn. I think you got to remember that... It, you know, at the beginning of the last downturn in oil prices, um, they had just come out of the largest spending spree in history from 2009 to, to, to 2013, spending about 15 to $30 billion a year on international oil and gas assets when oil prices and asset prices were peaking. So um, once the, the oil price crash of 2014 happened, there was a lot of hesitance in going back into M&A markets. Um, and, you know, they really their focus was on, you know, reorganization, portfolio optimization, change of management, cost control, and and also to, to a greater extent, um, more and more in the past few years, asset divestment. Um, however, um, times are, are very different now. They've gone through through that whole whole process. Um, it's very clear uh, that energy security is at the forefront of their strategy. It's very clear that you know they need to continue to grow. Uh, you can't compare uh, an, a, a Chinese NOC to to uh, um, to an IOC. Uh, they're they're not measured in the same level of success. You know many IOCs are not no longer measured on their their growth. Um, whereas Chinese NOCs have to continue to grow. And so, uh, you know, arguably, um, they're in a much better position uh, in this downturn to, to tap into interna to international M&A. Um, you know, not, notwithstanding the fact that, you know, like what Yin and, and, um, and, and Kung Fung has just said is, you know, they are in a, in a fairly uh, relatively healthy um, cash flow position and uh, they have relatively low debt. Um, policy reform remains in place. Um, you know, energy security remains at the at the forefront of their agenda. And uh, and there are a lot of opportunities out there uh, with relatively cheap asset prices. Uh, so I, 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 I definitely see this as a very, very opportunistic um, time for Chinese NOCs to enter into to inter international M&A. Yeah, and I think that's that the lessons that we've really learned, and this is not really the China national company specific, but to the whole peer group of national companies, is that uh, they've learned a tremendous amount of lessons through the first foray of international M&A, um, and they are going to obviously be much, have a greater level of scrutiny in terms of the asset quality. Um, so they will have uh, clearly a, a significant opportunity set to pick from. Uh, but if there's a perception that that kind of spending spree will happen again, I think uh, is probably unrealistic. So then coming back to you, Yin, then where is the footprint going to be moving towards? What are the potential uh, sub-regions or regions do we start to see 
um, those national companies go out? And do we see that to be all three-pronged attack or will some just not be able to execute on that? Thank you, Nick. Uh, I think Eric just men mentioned a really interesting point that the Chinese NOCs really have built a international portfolio based on previous M&As, but they have quite different rationale uh, in directing their overseas invest investment in the past. So CNPC was the first one to go out and has uh, has a really uh, important goal of support their domestic supply with the overseas equity production. So really the focus is the areas where they can easily transport equity production back to domestic market via their uh, mainstream assets. So we can see the focus area has been Central Asia, Russia, and Africa as well. Uh, but for Sinopec and Sinuk, their original goal was to quickly uh, enlarge their portfolio and have a very diversified exposure to different asset types. So we can see that their portfolio is relatively scattered um, around the world with uh, different composition of, of asset classes. Um, so, um, I mean, a different the strategy uh, has resulted in different financial returns. We can see CNPC is performing relatively well financially in the overseas portfolio, but Sinopec is struggling a little bit. So going forward, um, I think the NOCs, they all have a goal of um, acquiring more early stage exploration assets to capture the relatively favorable financial return. Uh, so the um, focus area could be some of the industry hotspots, such, Latin, such as Latin America and CIS. We can see CNUC and CMPC participated in the, the Brazil Deepwater Pre-Salt Big Round last year, and they also purchased a stake in the, in the Arctic LNG as well. But this could be relatively dif difficult for Sinopac because, they're, uh, because of their relatively uh, poor financial return. So it really is uh, is different based on company's strategy and their financial positions. Yeah, and for me, I think the key takeaway um, is, you know, the competition, um, the activity, the cost of exploration will be at record lows, right? So when you think about new fuel wildcats in 2014, uh, you know, the industry was drilling up to 1,200 new fuel wildcats across um, you know, emerging frontier and maturing basins. And, and we see that dipping down to, to 200. So it's essentially an 80% drop. Um, and, and, you know, host governments in particular had initially planned 50 plus bid rounds this year, and they will obviously revisit, cancel, postpone um, a number of different routes. But I think for the China national companies who are looking for exploration uh, as a way to replenish reserves, and they may have a longer time horizon to other companies who may see exploration too far in terms of their return on capital requirements, this could really put the Chinese national companies in a very strong position. Um, I kind of want to shift then really back, uh, you know, the last part here is on the domestic side, because I think um, it's often been missed, but I, you know, people have talked a lot about the domestic prize. Um, so I want to just touch base with you, Kunfeng, the policy reforms, you know, what's really been happening on that front and what do you see some of the, the implications are? And then I think, Eric, you would also have some in, in, insights on the new pipeline, um, you know, uh, setup that's happening in the country and what that means for competition. So 
Uh, that would be interesting, I think, for, for, for our listeners to hear about what is the policy reform on the domestic front. Yes, Nick. On the policy side, actually, China has been pursuing uh, to vitalize domestic oil and gas production through its policy reform, and that has been centered as a measure to secure China's energy security. And if we look back in the past few years, actually, a lot of new policies has been uh, has been uh, adopted by the Chinese government to achieve that objective. At the beginning, it was more focused on about subsidies, and finally, it gradually shifted to uh, structural reform. And the key purpose currently, as I just mentioned about, is to try to introduce more players in China's upstream uh, sector. But of course, currently, we we can see that the uh, all those reforms, the impact might be uh, discounted because of the current oil and gas price environment. But I think the reform will be continued because that is uh, important for China's energy security and will, uh, it might be a good time actually for Chinese government to to accelerate the reform at such a time. But, but where will that attention be? Are we thinking about conventional? Is it unconventional? Where is the, the landscape for companies to enter? Yeah, if you look at China's resources, uh, the government always wanted to attract more oil, uh, oil companies, foreign oil companies into the unconventional sector because uh, China has a lot of potential and China wants to tap into the technologies from US or any other IOCs. And, but we all know that it's very challenging here in China to, in terms of the resources on unconventionals. But we have seen a lot of progress on that. And one of the key bottleneck we have seen, what, what is the difference from other countries, especially like US, is that uh, we don't have too much players or different types of players trying to, to explore unconventionals. And that might be one of the direction that the government wants to pursue. And that's why we have seen that it has been pursuing to introduce more players into unconventionals. And, and Eric, uh, you know, just to kind of round up here a discussion, <clears throat> what are some of the challenges uh, that are quite unique um, to where some of the shale and tight gas, resource, tight gas resources are located um, that, that differentiate it from, let's say, the US onshore and Permian? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, like Kung Fung said, there, there's no doubt that there is an abundance of, of resource and an abundance of potential for domestic um, resources and production in China. And of course, that's that's one of the main main reasons why why China has put that at the forefront of their strategy, domestic energy policy. Um, and however, you know, it, it has been quite difficult for for Chinese NOCs to to get that up and running. I mean, uh, for the unconventional resources in China, they're they're still at their very at their at their infancy stage. If you compare that to uh, a play like the Permian in the U.S., only a, a very very small fraction of the number of wells that have been drilled in the Permian have been drilled in in Sichuan Basin, for example. Um, and so, the one of the reasons for this is that cost has been relatively uh, high, but 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 as as Kung Fung also said, it, it it is it is on the uh, it is currently decreasing, um, and 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 if you compare the cost of um, producing uh, domestic barrels to to importing um, barrels, especially uh, for gas, it, it can be considered to be quite com uh, competitive 
versus versus pipeline imports for gas or versus LNG imports. Um, and so, of course, um, like you said, Nick, the, China does have its unique challenges in in their unconventional base in their unconventional resource place. Um, I think one of the critical differences, like Kung Fung said, that you know there are only basically there are only th two or three players uh, that are that are drilling. It's it's CMPC and Sinopec. In 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 the U.S., you have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of companies uh, that are competing for for the most efficient drilling practices. Um, I think surface conditions are are very different from, um, for example, Sichuan in, in compared to uh, to the Permian Basin. Um, the the plays themselves are much thinner um, and very very difficult to drill and frack in uh, in 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 China in, in general. Um, you also don't have the same level of uh, uh, supply chain. Uh, and oil field service uh, suppliers, as as you do in 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 the U.S., much less uh, smaller, um, smaller and less specialized expertise in China, and 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 they don't have the same level of technology as you would get in the U.S. Um, lower quality materials, lower quality rigs, shortage of rigs, water shortages. There, the list goes on and on. So it is a difficult, much more difficult. To develop these resources in China, um, and 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 not to mention the bottlenecks and some of the takeaway and pipeline capacity that have been, um, you know, one of the main bottlenecks has been that uh, the pipe most of the pipeline system is 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 is, um, is owned by by CMPC, and so some of the focus areas which is, which is that, changing there, right? Which is right. changing. Right. Uh, yeah. Exactly. And so they are doing a lot about this. The Chinese government knows that they they have unique challenges, and and you know they know that they have to change this. So they are trying to open up the upstream to get more players in. Uh, they're trying to get more service companies in. Um, you know they're um, they're trying to adopt into a greater extent whole basin strategies where you know you can target. Uh, several different uh, structures of the play um, using different drilling techniques and different te technologies. Um, really, the focus should also be on on well productivity, um, total recovery per well, rather than uh, you know keeping well costs well costs as low as possible, um, and developing uh, world class capabilities. And finally, like you said, developing a pipeline infrastructure. With a competitive pipeline infrastructure with third-party access, uh, and 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 investing in that pipeline infrastructure. Of course, a lot of the basins in China are in very very remote places where there is little infrastructure, uh, and so what the government is now currently doing uh, is they're creating a, a national pipeline company which will be will be open for foreign investment and and and, and private investment, um, which will promote. Um, obviously, third-party access for one, uh, as well as uh, promote new investment in new infrastructure, which is desperately needed in China. I think China only has about uh, 10% of the pipeline capacity as as that of the United States, uh, and obviously that needs to be be taken care of, and and that that is the, one of the reasons for for creating this new pipeline company. So um, they're doing a lot. 
and they realize their their challenges, and so um, they will continue to uh, to improve improve the situation. You're very thanks, Eric. I think that that sums up some of the nuances. Well, not only at a company level, at a country level, but I think a number of countries are going to be thinking about that. Um, thank you to uh, Yin, Eric, and Kunfeng. So just to kind of summarize our discussion, um, you know, the, the energy security um, uh, will take both domestic and international aspects into consideration. Uh, we know from the domestic side, it's a largely a mature asset base, yet there is upside in the unconventionals, but we're still um, developing that resource base. And there's a uh, number of hurdles to get over, but, but clearly... Uh, there's an intention uh, on the on the on the policy front to make that happen. Uh, on the international M and exploration, as well as the financial health of the national companies, what what has clearly happened in the last five years has been a lot of uh, cleaning up of the portfolio, lowering the cost structure, and and refocusing on more longer term exploration. But if there is a mood to do M and A, it'll be much more focused in in key areas of competency rather than uh, potentially be uh, much more broader than that. So I think it does set uh, up a quite a fascinating time in the next coming years. Um, clearly, I think the global M&A and exploration market will be looking towards China to potentially be a stimulant in that area, given the relatively uh, strong financial health and the energy security needs. Uh, but I think we'll have to see how aggressive they will be in this next cycle uh, than the one before that. So thank you to my colleagues and thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us on this special episode of Upstream in Perspective. Our team continues to publish insights and report as news breaks. For the latest insights, be sure you follow us on social media or subscribe to our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. And if you have a question or topic for our team to address on an upcoming podcast, you can submit it to us at www.ihsmarket.com slash upstream podcast. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy Solutions, visit ihsmarket.com slash energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.